independent media is more important than ever. We don't have a corporate network behind us, and we also don't have big green foundation grants. So we really do need you, and we are actively calling in your direct support so that we can continue exploring many of these topics and perspectives, often sidelined by mainstream media. If you're enjoying our show, please make sure you're subscribed and join us on Patreon today, starting at a tip of just $3 at patreon.com slash green dreamer. Every little bit helps and really adds up. And that is the power in community. So thank you so much for however you're able to support our work. Hey, it's your host, Kamea Shane, and this is Green Dreamer, a podcast exploring our paths to collective healing, ecological regeneration, and true abundance and wellness for all. As a community-powered show made possible by listeners like you, we do need your direct support to be able to continue the show and keep exploring a lot of these perspectives, often sidelined by mainstream media. So if you value these conversations, you can reciprocate support for us starting from a gift of $2 at greendreamer.com support. Also, we just launched our fundraising Green Dreamer planners. They include the major socio-ecological awareness dates, gratitude sections, inspirational quotes from our past guests, weekly suggested grounding actions, and more. And they're made with recycled paper, bound by recycled craft paper, and protected by optional recycled cotton book cloths. But more importantly, I designed them intentionally to support our mental well-being. So if and only if you do make good use of physical planners, I would love for you to check them out at greendreamer.com slash planners. And now on to today's episode where we're speaking with Max Isle. Because that wealth is taken out, it adds to the wealth and therefore creates what's called the development of the first world and robs that wealth and therefore creates the poverty and what's called the underdevelopment of the periphery. And so we see that this is a relational process, right? This is a relation between them. Underdevelopment and development is actually a process of theft. Max is a postdoc at Wageningen University's Rural Sociology Group and an associated researcher with the Tunisian Observatory for Food Sovereignty and the Environment. His academic articles and reviews on Middle East and North African agriculture and development theory have been published in Globalizations, Review of African Political Economy, Middle East Report, along with several in the Journal of Peasant Studies. Just a quick heads up, there are a few parts of this interview where we were unable to fully remove the background noise, and we didn't want to cut those parts out altogether, but if you end up skipping through any sections that are difficult to listen to, we do have the full transcript available on our website at greendreamer.com. We are centering our conversation today on Max's book, A People's Green New Deal, and we begin here as I prompt Max with this question. If the popularized version of a Green New Deal, as it's been laid out today, were to be enacted upon and fully realized, what might that look like? And crucially, what does it leave out? So suppose Ocasio-Cortez's Green New Deal would be implemented. And here we have to engage in a bit of projection. Because one of the facts that's kind of been under articulated in relation to the Ocasio-Cortez Green New Deal. The Ocasio-Cortez Green New Deal is very skeletal, right? Like quite a fair bit of her political positioning. It is a bit nebulous, a bit opaque. It can be uh, interpreted in multiple ways and it gestures in multiple directions. But with that said, I mean, we have several main lines of policy associated with the Ocasio-Cortez Green New Deal. The core of it is probably, one, a partnership between communities, state, and private capital. This is pretty much uh, explicit in the text of her uh, non-binding legislation on the one hand. On the other, there is a call for the U.S. to become a leader in the development of green tech technology. And then there's a lot of things that aren't there which would be relevant when we talk about what the impact of the Green New Deal would be on the remainder of the world. And so something to keep in mind when we hear about the impact of the Green New Deal on the rest of the world is that 
The U.S. capitalism, uh, settler colonialism, imperialism is already a way of managing and constituting the U.S. relationship with the rest of the world. So when we talk about a Green No Deal, either it's going to transform the appearance of some of those things while keeping the, the core factors the same, it's going to actually transform in a positive way, or it's going to make them worse. But if it doesn't mention them, then it's obviously going to keep the basic flows and hierarchies in place. So I think what we would see is a huge, huge push towards renewable energy investments, perhaps state-led in order to finish getting the costs below to the point where where it's very profitable for the private sector, but then with the private sector taking the lead. We would see large, uh, substantial build-out of probably state infrastructure, especially around mass transport, just because there's really very little way to imagine dealing with the climate issues without that. You would probably see a lot of state investment in things like biofuels, lab meat, possibly nuclear. And you would see a greening of the U.S. military. You would see massive amounts of mining and resource extraction in the third world because that's where most of the minerals like Bolivia, Chile, Congo, that's where a lot of the minerals necessary for a green transition are located, or at least the economically recoverable deposits using the current technology. Uh, you see a lot of investment in carbon capture and storage to try to get that technology either profitable or scaled up, although it's really quite a pipe dream. And you would probably see the U.S. charging extortionate rates to the third world for the sale or technology sharing in relation to the renewable technology. And you you would see probably continued intervention in any third world country that didn't want to play ball with the agenda I just laid out. It's definitely a little concerning because I feel like we're already embarking on this path. And that to me raises a lot of red flags. And like we mentioned, the Green New Deal seems to have become widely known and supported primarily by activists in nations like the U.S., but less so in the global south or, as you say, the more periphery nations. Can you speak more to the Eurocentric nature of the Green New Deal and also why global elites or those with profit motives may still or may have even welcomed and helped fuel its rise, if not just for their moral concerns about the state of the planet? Yeah, absolutely. It's a super important question. And I think I, I should probably elaborate on some of what I meant earlier. I mean, any massive social economic policy that is being crafted, forged, and implemented in the U.S. is already is acting to either uphold, transform, or worsen the existing system of accumulation that already exists on the planet, right? Which is a system of accumulation on a world scale, which involves the U.S. kind of sucking labor and resources out of the poorer countries very systematically. And it's a bit Byzantine to explain. It's something called uneven exchange. But basically what it means is that uh, an hour of labor in the U.S. buys the labor of, say, 10 or 20 people in Africa. And it even buys the labor of people who are using the same types of technology that we're using in the U.S. It would still buy much more of their labor just because wages are suppressed there. And what that means is that people in the U.S. have access to more of the things that are produced in the whole world than people in the South. That's what we mean in part by uneven accumulation. I mean, that's meant to serve a broader goal of profit and to the great profit of the northern monopolies. The way it manifests is that there's a sharp divergence in who has access to all the things that are produced and also all the things that go into those things, meaning labor and resources, that access to those things is sharply uneven north and south, right? That's just the world. That's the world we live in. That's the colonial system. That's the neo-colonial system. That's the world. So unless a Green New Deal actually explicitly names that specific developmental pathology, which is in fact a pathology which is endemic to capitalism, unless it names it and actually lays out specific remedies to actually deal with those 
pathologies, then those pathologies are simply going to continue. That's fundamental. So the problem with the Green New Deal, as it's uh, been proposed and very much lifted up, is that it doesn't really deal with this economic system as it actually is, right? And this is particularly a problem on the left where there are real or purported, depending on the the personnel at hand, aspirations to things like egalitarianism and progressivism in a just world. Now, if you want to make the world just, you have to say, okay, what are the things that are making it unjust and let us deal with those things? If you don't acknowledge that those things are making it unjust, you can't actually make it just. It's just common sense. Like You have to know what a problem is and all of its little sub-problems in order to fix the problem. If some if someone's describing a different problem and you try and fix a different problem, but that's not the problem you're facing, you're not actually going to fix it, right? So this is where we get into the troubles of the Green New Deal. It's saying, okay, we're going to offer technology transfer and the U.S. being a green tech leader and selling very profitable technology. Is that is the problem of the third world that it can't buy technology or is it that it's old colonial debts from colonialism, from neocolonialism, from enclosure of the atmospheric space and so forth? I mean, is the problem, is, as is sometimes proposed, merely debt cancellation or is the problem, uh, you know, the, the massive debt load that the third world countries pay to the U.S. every year? Or is the problem not only the fact that they're paying these debts continually, but that the debts that they've already paid and all the interest on that, that actually should be paid back to them in the form of reparations, is what Fanon called for 60 years ago, and that furthermore, that there should be reparations paid for climate debt. So if we, we have to clearly identify the problem, especially as that problem is posed by the people and the popular movements and the governments that crystallize the aspirations of those popular movements in the periphery, in the third world, we have to listen to what those people are actually saying and saying, these are our problems, and these are the solutions we envisage. And then people living in countries like the US or the United Kingdom or Australia can say, either one, we're on board with that, or two, nah, we're not interested. That is politics, right? That is politics. Some people will be like, yeah, we're on board with that. And I hope a lot of people who are progressives will be on board with it. I don't see any reason why not. And the people who are not are interested in a fundamentally different kind of project. I think it's just important to be clear, okay, then you're interested in a different kind of project where you're not interested in building with the most legitimate, wide-ranging, ambitious demands from from the third world. You're interested in picking and choosing. Okay, that's everyone lives their life and is in the world as they wish to be in the world. But that's a different kind of thing that they want to do. Yeah. The fact that the Green New Deal itself doesn't challenge the underlying system that is predicated on endless extraction has been a big red flag for me, especially after learning about the non-renewability of the technologies and infrastructure needed to convert renewable energy into what can be used to power civilization. And there's still a limit there that can't accommodate endless growth. Though inevitably, people raise this question of what if we just accounted for the negative externalities and assigned higher values to our quote-unquote resources and quote-unquote labor, in essence, creating a more conscious version of the current system through reform? What are your thoughts on that and what might still go unaddressed without a deeper transformation? Yeah, so there is a push to value ecosystems resources, uh, and, and you know what what are called ecosystem services and so forth. And and there's a lot of documents that circulate. You know, ecosystem services provide sixty six trillion dollars in in value for humanity in the year two thousand twenty one, et cetera, et cetera. I mean, these people have their hearts in the right place, but their minds are really uh, awry. I mean, the the price system is not an end. It's a, it's a means, right? The price system is a means to facilitate uneven accumulation, to go circle back to the original point, right? The price system is a means. It's just a mechanism. It's like a computer program. It's a code that ensures that there is a polarization of accumulation, right? That the rich get richer and the poor get poorer in uh, more common terms, right? That's what the price system is doing. So, People who want to re-engineer the price system to enfold 
say the long-term interest of humanity and the short, medium, and long-term interest, if we can use that term, for non-human nature are you know, putting the cart before the horse. Because the, to reform the price system in that way actually requires a massive political struggle. It's not that, it's not that price doesn't matter, right? But it's that you need a massive political struggle in order to change the price system to actually make it humane because the prices are, are more or less set in one way or another by people who are the kind of the avatars of a system, which is emphatically not humane, right? So there have been things, attempts like this before to politically engineer the price system on a world scale. I mean, this goes back to the 60s, 70s, and 80s. There were widespread demands from the South for fair exchange for their commodities in exchange for the manufactured goods of the richer countries. Now, this this project was shattered. Why was this project shattered? A large part of why this project shattered, in addition to the fact that you know the U.S. was waging absolute warfare against a lot of the countries in the South that were really fighting for this transformation in, in, in world prices, is that it was countries like Algeria, on the one hand, supposedly in a common camp with countries like Saudi Arabia on the other, whereas Algeria was the product of one of the massive anti-colonial national populist revolutions of uh, the previous century, and Saudi Arabia, which is basically a creation of the U.S. Department of Defense and State Department, Bechtel, Halliburton, Exxon, and so forth. It's just a creature of U.S. corporations by and large, right? So... That political project of re-engineering the price system was saying, okay, we're gonna we have these two forces that ha- one one wants to challenge power, one doesn't want to challenge power, and supposedly they're agitating to make the price system more just and more in the interests of the third world. So of course it failed, right? Because they weren't it wasn't thought th- through properly at the political level, or there wasn't enough power and there was so people kind of made opportunist decisions. Be that as it may, right, they kind of, they too put the cart before the horse. They were like, okay, we want just prices without thinking, okay, who is interested in just prices and who are our friends and who are our enemies in the endeavor to make prices just. It's it's a similar thing with, with this idea that you can price in ecosystem services. Now, the other problem with pricing in ecosystem services is that in a sense, the externalities are already internal, right? Like capitalism, on the one hand, is subsisting and thriving based precisely on expelling the costs onto the environment to just through massively damaging the environment and massively damaging the environment on north-south ground. So the southern environments are much more damaged than northern environments. That's part and parcel of the price system, right? So why is the north going to accept and the corporations of the North, why, why will they accept a renovation of the price system? They'll say get lost, mm. right? They're not really willing to accept any sort of renovation of the price system until it seems that the overall system of accumulation itself is in danger of collapse, right? Then they'll be willing to do some type of revamping, but not a revamping that challenges the hierarchy of our world, right? Yeah. On that note, to deconstruct the dominant discourses on climate action even more, as corporations and governments are setting their agendas and commitments, we often hear this seemingly ambitious goal of net zero or net neutral and things like that. And because the dominant climate discourses tend to focus on the cause of the problem being excess greenhouse gas emissions, net zero and net neutral may seem like they're on the right track. But what loopholes are there with this type of framing that allow for certain elephants in the room to go unaddressed? And how might its reductive approach lead to, quote unquote, solutions that may even be destructive? The net neutral idea is functioning, I think, on two distinct timescales, right? On the one hand, on the very immediate timescale, you have this kind of proposal that carbon emissions can be what's called offset that a corporation can burn a gallon of gas and plant three trees and okay it's carbon neutral and if it's it's claiming and in a sense monetizing the carbon absorption capacity the carbon dioxide absorption capacity of those trees so 
this idea of net zero is already existing in a sense in embryo in a lot of the dominant climate conversation. And, and But the problem is that it's been a total falsehood, right? Like, so none of these, it, it's been impossible basically to verify that those trees that say Exxon hypothetically plants in compensation for the barrel of oil that it sells. It's been impossible to verify that those trees would not have otherwise been planted. In other words, very often these kind of so-called offsets are just taking credit for things would have happened anyway, and they don't lead to less carbon dioxide emissions. That's one thing. Another problem of net zero is that even if it's purportedly uh, successful at some level at offsetting some of the emissions, the problem is that we need to get to negative emissions. All the IPCC climate pathways envision a heavy usage of negative emissions merely to make the planet survivable past 2050, right? That's the only way, even under the most optimistic scenarios, you have a brief overshot to uh, 1.6 to 1.8 degrees Celsius, and then you can go back down by the end of the century to to below 1.5 using negative emissions technologies. So we need those negative emissions technologies in addition to getting to not net zero, but real zero, right? We need below zero. So it's imperative to get actual CO2 emissions. Methane is a little trickier. We can discuss that more later. But to get CO2 emissions must get very close to zero. I mean, there's certain... It's not clear that you can get all the all the processes you need to zero, and this is this is like not the most significant thing. The thing is that you have to more or less get close to zero, right? Now that's that's another thing. Now the third thing, the third kind of pernicious aspect of net zero is the net zero often is proposing a certain set of technologies to get to net zero, right? So these net zero technologies, suppose they are proposing something like mass reforestation or mass afforestation. Now, the the listener should pay attention because those aren't the same thing, actually. Reforestation is putting a tree where a tree was cut down. Afforestation is adding trees where they historically have not been. Now, one problem of, of this idea of reforestation is it relies on models about where trees have been historically, but the models are very bad often. They kind of rely on this idea that Europe and the US and even North Africa were just always covered, blanketed in trees. This is kind of a Western uh, fantasy that has been uh, exported and promulgated and recklessly applied to all countries of the world, including the West itself. And it's just not the case, right? You actually have tapestry landscapes all over the place. You don't have this type of blanketed trees everywhere, blanket of trees everywhere. That's one problem. So two, the problem is with this idea of afforestation, which uh, is now being widely touted both on the right, uh, on the center, and also on what passes for the North American left. I mean, the North American left is sort of a death trap meant to disorganize, control leftists and prevent them from actually contributing to changing the world. But be that as it may, I mean, there are these ideas of afforestation, of planting trees everywhere. The problem is that it is not ecologically appropriate to plant trees everywhere. This is a huge problem. So if you plant trees, first of all, if you plant the same type of tree all at the same time, it's going to just cause an immense damage to the water table because they're all sending down their roots to the same water table and it'll drain the whole water table, right? Which could cause huge damage and kind of dry out the landscape. I mean, there's also a lot of landscapes where there never have been trees. There are savanna landscapes, and there might be a tree dotted here and there, or a cluster, a clump of trees every now and then. But this is not what the landscape is used to being, right? So you you are putting trees where traditionally people, uh, you have animals, you have uh, grazing animals and so forth, bison or gazelles and so forth. I mean, so these are just environments that are not particularly suitable for trees. And in the places where they've attempted to do reforestation and afforestation, I mean, there have been attempts in 
Ethiopia, Morocco. It's been kind of roundly unsuccessful. I think there was a report that just came out. I, I didn't um, a peer-reviewed report that then got wide publication. I think it came out about 10 days ago. I didn't have time to more than skim it recently. But basically, it stated that there are no uh, successful examples, really, of this kind of wide-scale, intentional, climate-oriented reforestation, reforestation that it it's not a particularly successful thing to do. Yet this is the basis of a large portion of even the IPCC, which is much more rational than much of the Western left, uh, of the IPCC's calculations regarding negative carbon emissions, right? So you have these proposals, or you have proposals for kind of biofuel. Well, biofuel is uh, sugarcane and so forth competes with food crops. So the more biofuels or crops that you convert into some form of uh, fuel that is a, a purportedly carbon neutral, carbon negative, it competes with food crops. So basically, yeah, you, you can get to a form of net zero, perhaps. Maybe you can, but you also starve huge portions of the world population. And of course, this has happened before, right? This isn't a kind of conjecture hypothesis. I mean, uh, we know very well that, for example, when, uh, you know, Britain needed to extract uh, cereals in, uh, in Bengal, Keynes, the, the hero of Western economics, you know, John Maynard Keynes, kind of engineered a, a famine in Bengal to extract the necessary resources. Millions of people died, right? And in fact, we, and we know very well that in, after the collapse of the USSR, there was this kind of uh, world, uh, you know, suddenly a huge amount of the demand for food disappeared from the market. It disappeared from the market because tens of millions of people practically uh, started starving and dying, right? That's what happened. That's what the fall of the USSR meant, right? Like huge amount of human suffering. So this idea, of course, that the West is not, you know, the, the, the West would not carry out this type of forced starvation is actually uh, not really accurate. Look at Yemen, right, where uh, people are actually starving to death right now. This is the type of thing that's entailed in these net zero, right? The net zero are either at worst or best, I don't know which is worst or best, are excuses to keep polluting. Or even if net zero will work, it would involve basically using already used natural resources and lands for the purpose purely of basically carbon farming, which would just have catastrophic livelihood impacts. I mean, this is basically universally acknowledged across a kind of left liberal to, to radical, you know, sustainability, uh, natural resources community, everyone is basically in agreement that these types of interventions will be absolutely catastrophic. I mean, the IPCC, the UN, uh, says pretty much the same thing. It's just that the corporations are not very interested in uh, incorporating the concerns of humanity into their own calculus for how to deal with climate change. There's a lot of nuance and there are a lot of unintended consequences when people and corporations take this reductive approach of hyper fixating on the equation of carbon sequestration. And when they leave out the broader context of the communities and the bioregional communities that are involved. And another concern that you have with the Green New Deal and even with the degrowth movement, generally speaking with exceptions, is that they aren't really situated in an acknowledgement of the impacts of imperialism. And we had talked a lot on the show before about colonization and how, and how it has disrupted the place-based knowledges, cultures, communities, and relationships needed to care for our diverse bioregions. But to ask a more basic question, how exactly does imperialism play out for those who are less familiar with this concept, and how does it relate to colonialism and our global extractive system? Imperialism is basically the domination of a weaker country by a stronger country in its most basic term, right? So that can take the form of colonialism where countries actually lose their kind of, their peoples lose control over the kind of political architecture of the country and the politics of their country become under the formal control of a foreign power basically uh, European and in a later stage American. Now, that's basically colonialism. Imperialism often can take the form of colonialism, meaning it can take the form of a direct uh, political control over uh, foreign territory, but it can also just mean 
the economic control and the drain of wealth. So for example, it can mean investments. It can mean investments in raw materials. It can also mean offshoring production and suppressing wages so that industrialization is, for example, occurring in uh, Bangladesh, but there's massive environmental pollution going on. There's massive violations of, of the human and labor rights of the workers. And what happens is that there's great profit mounding up in the coffers and the bank vaults of the corporations that are carrying out these foreign investments. So what imperialism and colonialism have in common, and of course, colonialism has been part and parcel of imperialism for the most part, is that we we have kind of a domination of a weaker country by a stronger country, and the domination is takes the form of and is used to facilitate the transfer of wealth and resources from the poorer country to the wealthier country. And of course, there's important, very important variations on the process as well. For example, the settler colonialism, where you actually have the murder, uh, genocide of indigenous populations so that the most important resource can be transferred from the poorer country to the richer country or the richer country's population, namely the land. So if you've done uh, settler colonialism, it's basically a process of shifting the control of the land itself from the people of the poorer country to the people of the richer countries. That's exactly what happened, or, or people who have some sort of socio-political relationship to global Europe, we can say, right? So this is basically what we're talking about when we talk about settler colonialism in the United States. Control over the land and its resources passed from the people living in this lands of Turtle Island before it was the United States to white settlers, Right, and it's the same in uh, in Palestine. Although it, you know, some of the settlers were, of course, from um, from the Arab lands or from Ethiopia, from Iran, etc. Although the political and economic control in Israel is controlled by white Europeans, but the most essential point is that the the control of the land, the resources of the land, passed from being part of the third world to basically being distributed more or less amongst the people of the first world, right? And you have similar dynamics in Zimbabwe, where the or Namibia, where in fact Namibia, the land continues to be under the control of the settlers, even though there has been a formal decolonization, right? So we're really talking about uneven control over world resources on racial grounds. I mean, that is kind of essential to imperialism and colonialism, right? That we're talking about a global color line. And that it helps determine who, which kind of uh, socio-political block controls the lion's share of the world's resources. And of course, within that block, of course, there's uh, intense differentiation. And also in the poorer blocks, there's there's differentiation as well. But this doesn't th- this doesn't reverse the the fundamental pattern. Now. That's what we're talking about when we talk about imperialism. This is this is the system. I mean, this is from 1492 onwards. This has been the deepening logic of our entire world system. And so if the Green New Deal is not talking about changing it, then it's talking about maintaining it. So this goes back, I think, to a very small thing. I would want to take a small issue with what you said, that this is occurring unintentionally. And I think there are occurring uncaringly rather than unintentionally. And I just think it's a, it's a small but important distinction only in the sense that, you know, a lot of horrible things can happen without intending them, but people should know the effects of what they're doing. And that's part of why it's important to raise the debate about the Green New Deal is to clarify that people should know the effects of what they're proposing at zero global veganism and it, once it's been raised to them if they still purport to not pay attention to them then whether they are intending the consequences or not they're certainly responsible for them right i totally agree with you on that and appreciate you calling that out would it be accurate to say that this history of imperialism is what essentially created these quote-unquote categories of what people will call developing versus developed nations, where oftentimes quote-unquote developed nations are viewed as more advanced and more superior, but they kind of need to be contextualized with the history of imperialism and the injustices that that itself created. Absolutely. I think this is so fundamental. And a scholar named Andre Gunder Frank coined the term the development of underdevelopment. Right. What he was pointing out 
building on, on work actually from uh, Latin American historians like Sergio Bagu, was that, in fact, underdevelopment was a historical process, uh, outcome of the process of so-called development in the North, that these were two sides of one coin. And of course, two sides of one coin, that's one coin, and the coin is the historical process. So these countries which are underdeveloped actually there's a huge amount of research now showing very clearly that the wealth of the first world is very much based on the the wealth which then became the poverty of the third world and so we know this very well i mean there's a few let's take just a few examples that i think are are clarifying i mean we know very well for example that france's wealth is hugely based on the sugar profits that came from slave production in Haiti, right? And just massive amount of wealth was continually drained out of Haiti for years and years and years and years and decades, leading to, to France's enormous wealth. And we know that the lands of North Africa were used for cereal and grapevine production, and that these were just direct drains of wealth that went from where the, the fertility of the soil itself, the labor of North African laborers, basically was kind of alchemized into the wealth of both French settlers and also the kind of French trade, which brought those uh, products from North Africa into metropolitan France. And there's very, very, very detailed work. The, the most detailed work on this kind of process that's known as colonial drain has been done on India and Indonesia, to my knowledge. Indonesia, the wealth drains uh, to the Dutch, which is part of why the Dutch, uh, is uh, why the Netherlands is such remarkable wealthy country, despite its uh, essential lack of natural resources, right? And then the Uta Patnaik especially, and also Prabhat Patnaik, um, there are a couple there are Indian economists and have done just miraculous work detailing the drain of wealth from India and how basically this led to the concentration of wealth in England. And so basically England's wealth is based on the poverty of India because trillions, what, what is now amounting to, uh, it was not then, but if one factors in the interest rate, what amounts to trillions of dollars was drained from India and transmitted to England over uh, tens of years, over, over scores of decades. And so when we talk about the development of the first world, we are literally talking about the extraction of wealth, spices, cotton, textiles, silver, sugar. This is sent from the periphery, from the third world, from the underdeveloped countries to the core. Because that wealth is taken out, it adds to the wealth and therefore creates what's called the development of the first world and robs that wealth and therefore creates the poverty and what's called the underdevelopment of the periphery. And so we see that this is a relational process, right? This is a relation between them. Underdevelopment and development is actually a process of theft in a certain sense. So this is very much why, for example, at the, the Cochamaba People's Agreement, which not only do I discuss in my book, but which are freely available online. And I always encourage people who listen to these interviews to go check that out, Cochabamba People's Agreement. You can read up on it. And it discusses the ecological debt, the climate debt that's owed from the north to the south is actually one component of the broader ecological debt. So in that way, they avoid this problem of climate reductionism, right? And that the ecological debt is only one portion of the colonial debt in the sense that these kind of thefts of the ecological well-being and uh, atmospheric space for carbon dioxide and the effects of global warming and so forth, these are actually only components of the broader colonial debt. And there was a reminder in there, in that document, that we have to keep the colonial debt in mind too. And what, what that means is focusing on this overall process of the role of colonialism in constituting the world as this kind of underdeveloped, developed dyad or pair. Yeah. And without addressing this, the Green New Deal as it stands has this vision of switching 100% to renewable energy. That's just going to, it's going to uphold the same relation through the extraction and transfer of minerals. And 
in orienting towards anti-imperialism, you say each nation has to essentially start from minding its own business and non-intervention in the affairs of other nations needs to be the starting point for worldwide environmental justice and environmental revolution, end quote. I feel that this may be construed or misconstrued as nationalism or even isolationism when perhaps it needs to be understood by people through the lens of power and control. So I wonder if you could clarify this further and how you would unpack the different levels of collaboration that still need to take place for everyday people wanting to show solidarity with other grassroots movements around the globe that might be fighting for their own liberation against their own oppressive powers and governments. When we talk about things starting with hardline policy of, of non-involvement in the affairs of others, I mean, that is, of course, talking about non-involvement on the part of the imperial states. This is saying that the U.S. state in particular, which is the, probably the one we, I can discuss most intelligibly, the U.S. state should stop its military operations, it should stop its proxy arming operations, it should stop its intelligence operations, it should stop its uh, spying, it should stop its assassinations, it should stop its naval blockades, it should stop its unilateral illegal course of actions, more commonly known as sanctions, which it's now applying to you know some dozens of countries in the world that... Um, it should stop applying diplomatic pressure, that it should stop using IMF loans in order to pressure political outcomes, uh, that it should stop tying aid to certain political outcomes. What we're saying is the U.S. does not have the right to decide how other countries run their affairs, right? Now, we're talking about the U.S. state, and we're also saying this is actually a very hard and fast rule, that there are just no exceptions to this rule. The U.S. does not have the right to decide how other people Live. It has neither the authority nor the competence to do so. And we also know that it, whenever it carries out these policies of interference, it's doing so on behalf of the class in power in the United States, right? Which is the ruling class. So we have a, we have a hypothesis of the relationship between the economic system in the U.S. and the political system such that we understand that this call for non-interference is actually a call. It's a positive call. It's a call for the U.S. government to seize carrying out these activities, which essentially enrich the richest segments of the U.S. population, right, and harm people in the periphery and also indirectly people uh, in the United States as well. Now, this is not a denial of the importance of international solidarity, right? I and many other people have spent many years living in other countries and trying to understand what's going on there, um, researching developmental problems, translating journalism, translating human rights reports, translating their, their texts, explaining their political struggles, supporting them and making their political struggles knowable or legible to people in the United States. So this is not a policy of isolationism. This is a policy of... Uh, clarifying a specific political task in relation to where we are and in relation to certain power systems that we want to disrupt, while at the same time doing an international solidarity, but making sure that that international solidarity is actually working against the interests of the U.S. government, because we understand that there is no reforming the U.S. government in terms of actions abroad. What it needs to do is just chill out and not be involved in actions abroad, right? So this is not about isolationism, right? That's just a, a clarifying a starting point that other countries have to have this right of self-determination and be equal to the U.S. on the world stage, right? In the same way that the demand for decolonization allowed all the countries of the world to have, for the most part, still some missing, to have political sovereignty, to take their place amongst other nations within uh, the international state system, which doesn't mean the international state system is a particularly good system, right? But we understand that it's better than having countries that are actually colonized, right? That it's a step forward in terms of, in terms of the formal equality of peoples, and that non-intervention is actually just an affirmative defense of the gains of decolonization, right? It's saying, okay, we need to defend those gains 
And then we can talk, or at the, even at the same time, we can talk about how to go beyond those gains. But any talk of going beyond those gains has to actually continue to defend the gains which have already been achieved and are now being rolled back. And that a lot of people are like, well, maybe it's okay to intervene in that country. You know, the situation is pretty bad there. There are these people who need our help. I mean, this is how it's always spun, right? This is the rhetoric of intervention, that there is a humanitarian mission or a civilizing mission. So we need to push back against that way of thinking. And then finally, looking ahead to lay out a vision that centers communities globally and nation sovereignty and the sovereignty of peoples, you propose an alternative to the Green New Deal and its mainstream variations with the People's Green New Deal. What does this mean for our listeners who really resonated with our conversations here in terms of guiding our actions going forward? So People's Green New Deal, or at least what I put forward in my book, uh, and I, I don't really think I would want people fighting for necessarily per, uh, what's called a People's Green New Deal, but like I, some of the proposals I think are, are good, has just six or seven essential planks right? that I think we need to focus on. I mean, and there's planks related to internationalism, and there's planks related to domestic reconstruction. Right, the internationalist planks to just go back and, and continue from where we left off. Right, are, are non-interference in the affairs of other states, decolonization of the remaining settler states, including the U.S. itself, the payment of climate debt to the South to the tune of 1.2 trillion dollars from the U.S. to to the global South every year, and comprehensive demilitarization of the U.S. So the abolition of the U.S. military. Now. That, that's in so far as, as we relate to uh, other countries. Now, in terms of what happens domestically, we need to think about how to make people's lives better without extracting resources in an unjust way from the South. And I think that can be done, right? I think it can definitely be done. It just needs to be carefully detailed how to do it. So it's things like, one, you need a fundamental agrarian reform and you need um, far superior landscape management in the U.S. And landscape management is about, in some places, like especially in cities, planting trees. It can be urban gardens. It could be uh, flood prevention. And all of those things actually make people's lives better. The only thing you actually need to do any of those things is a little bit of labor. Right? You don't need to extract things from the third world to plant trees and urban gardens and cities, to add more parks to cities, and to, to put in place uh, flood prevention, both in the city and the countryside, to restore fertility to the soil so it can better absorb rain. I mean, we know very well that these floods are going to be a greater and greater issue as global warming gets worse and worse with extreme weather events. So it's about saying, okay, let us put in place these prevention measures to make people's lives better and not have to pay these huge costs in terms of the destruction of their lives when, when floods occur. It's also about thinking, okay, what forms of production will actually allow people to have better lives, clean up the environment, give people good jobs. And then we have things like refurbishing industries for uh, kind of creating solar-powered heater, water heaters of various kinds, fixing up the infrastructure, building up mass transit systems all over the entire country instead of planes. So in this way, these modes of building up kind of a social infrastructure or building up the, the things that are useful for people in the U.S. actually decrease the overall impact, uh, the ecological and social impact of the U.S. as a, as a country or as a you know, as a social formation, it decreases the impact. So in that way, you know, we should think always, uh, we should start from the premise, what are the things we can do to make our lives better, right? And, and especially protect the lives of the most vulnerable in a country like the U.S. without making people's lives worse in the poorer countries, right? That should be the measure, right? And so the more renewable materials, including, you know, wood, bamboo, et cetera, that are used for manufacturing and construction in the U.S., the less you have to extract things and cause uh, ecological impact from the periphery and also just on the planet as a whole, right? So this conversion actually can make people's lives better because a lot of people would love to live in like wood, bamboo uh, architecture and have 
objects made from wood and bamboo rather than plastic, right? This is common sense. At the same time as you make people's lives better, and at the same time, you reduce the impact of U.S. production and consumption on the rest of the world, right? So this is uh, another way of looking at things. I mean, another thing is the kind of the decommodification of the U.S. healthcare system. The U.S. healthcare system is extremely emissions intensive with horrible outcomes because it's technology intensive to the great profit of uh, health insurance companies and also the corporations that are manufacturing uh, medical supplies for the U.S. healthcare system. Why not invest in much more training for doctors, nurses, and especially general general practitioners, primary care doctors, have many more of both doctors and nurses and have a prevention-focused healthcare system rather than a reactive healthcare system. In that way, you can sharply reduce the carbon use in the healthcare system while actually probably improving healthcare outcomes on a population-level basis. You can do that, but you have to have an orientation to resisting capitalism. You also have to be thinking ecologically about healthcare, right? Which is something that is not necessarily something everybody's doing. You have to be thinking about bridging struggles, right? Between the struggle for national healthcare and the ecological struggle. And you have to be thinking about the third world and thinking about both where the materials for a lot of the kind of energy and technology intensive health interventions that we currently use, where that comes from. And furthermore, where a lot of our nurses come from, for example, a lot of them come from the Philippines or elsewhere in the third world. So there's a drain of doctors and nurses from the periphery. So we have to invest our social resources in, in, in our own training more. So this is not, not at all about nationalism, right? This is about thinking, okay, how can we change the way we train produce and consume healthcare in order to make everyone's lives better, except for the corporations whose lives we definitely want to make worse. What's been an impactful publication you follow or book that you've read? Ursula Le Guin, The Dispossessed. What is a personal motto, mantra, or practice you engage with to stay grounded? Stay optimistic. And what are some of your greatest sources of inspiration right now? I am very much inspired by the ongoing resistance of people in the Philippines and in Palestine and in Yemen to absolutely brutal processes of counterinsurgency and if not extermination and still fighting for land and dignity. Well, we are coming to a close, but Green Dreamer, you can follow Max on Twitter at Max Ayol and definitely check out his book, A People's Green New Deal, which we discussed today. Max, thank you so much for joining me on the show. It's been a pleasure to have you. What final words of wisdom do you have for us as Green Dreamers? Please go read the Cochabamba People's Agreement. This episode of Green Dreamer was brought to you by listeners like you. To reciprocate support for our community-powered show starting from just $2, you can head to greendreamer.com support. Without a media network behind us, we also rely entirely on word of mouth so that our extensive archive of conversations can reach and inspire more people. So if you get the chance to share your favorite episodes with friends and loved ones or to write us a five-star review in the podcast app, this all helps so much and we are so grateful. The song featured in this episode is Fallen Stars by Desmond White. Our audio producer is Scott Donnell. Our production manager is Tammy Gunn. And I'm your host, Kamea Shane. Take care and I will catch you soon in the next episode. 